I do think that there's a possibility that like if if Biden wins big, like if Biden wins Texas and Florida, it'll be over that night. It'll be over early. Nothing will be easy, Nick. I I know it won't be easy because I know there's going to be challenges after that moment. I see the potential of a scenario where this is a landslide. I mean, I was daydreaming. There's got to be... There's got to be a ton of people out there that are not vociferous about politics. They don't really like it. They don't like talking about it. They don't like thinking about it. And for them, as for me, you know, this Trump thing has just been the most annoying, horrible thing that they've experienced. And if those people come out and vote and they're just like, fuck this, like, let's get this guy out of here. I think it could easily be over that night. Actually, I saw Mandy Patkin, Patkin. Mandy Patinkin. Patinkin, yeah. Him, he was talking about his work doing the phone calls and like just like his successes, helping out with like technology or like little things that could go wrong that can make it, make you ineligible or whatever. Could you imagine getting a call from Mandy Patinkin? God, that'd be so cool. Who's Mandy Patinkin? Mandy Patinkin? He- Homeland. Oh, the, the older guy in Homeland. Okay, yeah, yeah. That's who I thought it was, but I just, I wasn't sure. He's Indigo Montoya from The Princess Bride. Who remembers that? Oh, seriously? He's. I don't know what that is. Indigo Montoya from The Princess Bride. And and he was in Yentl and Alien Nation and Dick Tracy. Mm. Someone killed his father. Yes. Prepared to die. I know something you don't know. He went to Juilliard with Kelsey Grammer. <laughs> he recommended Kelsey for the role of Dr. Fraser Crane. Mm. He's a luminary, it sounds like. He is indeed a luminary. I, this Wikipedia entry is bananas. He was, he was a juggalo. He was a juggalo for a long time, it says here in Wikipedia. What? No, I'm just making that up. <laughs> That'd be our actor. I'm trying too hard. All right. I guess I'm young, so I only know him from Criminal Minds. And then I discovered that I didn't even, because on Criminal Minds, he doesn't have a beard. And those are two different people to me. So in Criminal Minds, he doesn't have a beard. And then in Homeland, he does have this like gigantic yeah. beard. And I'm like, these are two different people. And then I realized like I was seeing the same name come up in the credit <laughs> i was like well shit <laughs> think about that though without a beard he probably is a totally different person mm. if if nick had to shave his beard i would not know who he was <laughs> yeah i'm mean, gonna be just like oh <laughs> who's this guy <laughs> get off the phone because <laughs> i can really hear your beard right now <laughs> Recorded on October 27th, 2020, this episode was. In this episode of It Will Probably Be Okay, we put aside our lingering anxiety about that darn pandy, and we spend some quality time instead worrying about police brutality, white supremacy, and what you should do when someone orders you to go home. Let's talk about curfews. Do they work? Are they an escalation of the police state? What impact do they have on crime reduction? My name is Gabe Wallenberg, and don't call my mom, please. My name is Mackenzie, and I am drinking eggnog already. 
I'm Nick, and I'm ready for the pandemic to be over. Mm, still. <laughs> Before we dive headfirst into curfew culture, let's have some mini topics. Hey, you guys, what time do you need to be home? This is kind of tangentially vaguely related to the pandemic, but I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but I have noticed that in many cars, the um, rearview mirror has been repurposed to hold people's masks. This is true. (laughs) And I was thinking, you know, the only thing that is supposed to go on your rearview mirror are those little smelly pine trees or your prom date's garter. Any garter, really. It doesn't have to be your prom date. (laughs) Also, what about your graduation tassels? Oh, you're right. Your graduation tassels. But anyways, so that got me. So I thought that would be a funny tweet. So I tweeted it. But that got me thinking, like, how weird is it? And Nakenji, I, I would be curious to hear how you would conceive this or if you're aware of this. But like, so at prom, what they do is the girl has a garter and she gives it to her date. And then the date wears it on the, the arm of their suit all night. And I just started like at the time when I was that age, it didn't seem that weird to me, but now it seems really, really weird that they would have kids do that. That isn't that. mm, mm. So Mm. I, so I don't understand dating stuff. We've been over this, but you're saying at, at your high school, the, the tradition was everybody got dressed up and dolled up. And then at some point the girl gave them, a piece of their underwear and they wore it on the outside of their clothes. So I, I actually brought this up the other night on my zoom call with my, my friends too, to figure out if, if they recalled this and if they thought it was weird too, most people said, and, and I certainly remember just my date giving the garter to me. I don't remember like ever like taking it off her or anything like that, but it, it just, it, Yes, yes. At some point, maybe they wore it. And then at some point, they gave it to us. And now, as a 38-year-old man, when I think about this, it just seems really strange. Like, hey, here's this intimate item of clothing of mine. Wear it on your arm. Like, it makes no sense. Isn't culture fucked up? It is. It's so, it's, yeah, it's so, it's so crazy. And it's just, it's funny how, you know, at the time, because that's what everybody's doing. And because you're the young, dummy, 17 year old boy, like, it just seemed like, oh, I guess this is what you do. But now as like, at my age now, I'm like, God, that is so weird. Seriously. They, they kicked me right out of the Home Depot walking around with those underwear tied to my arm (laughs) (laughs) just on Wednesday. So anyways, yes, that's just my, that's just my observation. The, the pandemic kind of weirdly helped me realize that my childhood was way weirder than I realized. I think that's true for everybody, but yeah, I love probably. that observation. And I will also throw this on. I don't hang my masks from uh, the rear view. I um, drive a minivan. And so I spread them out on the ample dashboard so that the magic cleaning power of the sun can bake the germs away. And then I don't have Is to watch. Is your air conditioning running out of time? Not currently. It's winter, but all summer I did. Yes. With no air conditioning running. I mean, you know, the air was running. Like I was essentially blowing the. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Blow drying my mask into my face. Now that you mention it, yeah. Mm. Yeah, you're supposed to hang that thing, buddy. You're supposed to hang you're right. it. Right. What dash. was I thinking? <laughs> I can't see mine. The other one, the other out choice is the shifter knob. Like I have the shifter knob there, but then it gets tangled in the keys. This way now I've just taken to like leaving the mask on because otherwise, like I do hang it on the center. And, but I always try to make sure like my compromise is to always make sure that I'm pulling from the string, not like touching the, the fabric, not the fabric, whatever the face mask part. But I don't think anyone's protocols for mask usage is up to par. No, no. way. Not, not, <laughs> okay, not no. a chance. Listen, <laughs> there's an actual smudge on my N95 on where I take it on and off. Like it's, <laughs> I can see my thumbprints on it. <laughs> like it always makes me think of like, you know, in movies where like there's a virus and like you see how a person touched the edge of the mask and they touched the door and then somebody else came over and they touched the door and then they made some food and then they sneezed and that's when they inhaled the virus. It's like, we're all going to die. (laughs) (laughs) In that case, we're all going to die. (laughs) Yeah. Half of us don't, can't even conceive of wearing these masks. And the the other half of us can't figure out how to wear them correctly. I just got to take it off for a second to catch my breath. (laughs) Oh, don't worry. I'll take it off with my face. (laughs) Oh, we are fucked. Okay. Nikenji. My mini topic is. My mini topic is going to be about that new Supreme Court justice, mm. but I, I still can't talk about her without using the B word mm. several times in a sentence, and I don't think that that should be recorded for posterity. So what I will talk about is eggnog, and <laughs> I am fascinated, right, by drinks that can hold their alcohol. What do I mean when I say that? I mean, when you can pour 10% drink <laughs> and 90% alcohol and it still tastes good, I am impressed. <laughs> so, like, last couple of weeks, I've been using, like, the mixed orange juice. So, simply orange juice with, like, mango or pineapple or something. And that shit was enjoyable for me. So, then I went to Coke. But... I don't like drinking soda. And then I switched to making my own lime juice, which is just like a lemon, a lime instead of a lemon with sugar and water. And anything acidic can hold its alcohol. Note to self. Mm-hmm. But the other day in the store, I saw eggnog being advertised uh, on a shelf. You know, the end caps. That's how they get you. That's how they get you. Yep, yep. I was like, fuck it. I haven't had it since. I have not had eggnog since Gabe gave me eggnog. <laughs> years ago. Like, now is the time. And I have been impressed. Like, when I pour my rum and a smidge <laughs> of eggnog, that shit be popping without it feeling like I'm just drinking drink And I, I don't know, maybe it's the alcoholic in me, but I'm just saying a note to you and our listeners. 
I don't mean this to be the Ask a Western Caribbean section of the show, but like, tell me more about your choice in rum. Oh, I always go with Bacardi because it reminds me most closest of Mount Gay Rum. Mm-hmm. My preference is for a brown rum. Like if I have to, and if it's cheaper, because I'm still cheap, I'll get a white rum. But I definitely really prefer, it's like the color and the richness of a brown rum is just incomparable. If I'm drinking white rum, I'm just like, I could just get vodka. Yeah, oh, I, I kind of feel the same way. And that's, I guess, why I was kind of wandering down that road back in my rum drinking days when I spent most of my time pretending I was a pirate on the internet, which is a topic for a show we should visit at some point. <laughs> I really enjoyed like a, a spiced Navy rum. That spiced rum thing is just a thing that I've been coached in America and I still don't believe it's real rum. And I understand that this is coming from a really judgy, pretentious place. <laughs> yeah. Spiced rum is not real. It's not real. And I, okay. I don't, and, but the thing is I'll drink it if I have to, but when anyone Talks to me about like Captain Morgan spice rum. I'm just like, no, no, yeah, no, no, no. I'm if I'm gonna buy a, a rum at a regular liquor store, I love, I like the Sailor Jerry, and that's just a good sort of trashy spiced rum. But I had some some stuff when we visited Belize 25 years ago that was just incredible, and like I've been chasing that ever since. <laughs> <laughs> we call that chasing the manatee. So you can't get Mount Gay rum here. I Kind of like premium and more expensive. Oh, okay. It's what you would pay for a like a a, a good whiskey, like a bullet bourbon kind of prices. And I don't got that sort of money all the time. I mean, I do, but like I just to me they're indistinguishable. Sure. In general, so I just make do with Bacardi. But I've tried other rums, and I always go back to Bacardi because that. That one is the closest to me uh, to Mount Gay. Gotcha. Cool, cool. You know, it sounds like you really are an octogenarian at heart. (laughs) 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 And that's our trauma. I don't know what's wrong with me. All right. So I thought we could talk tonight about curfews. Curfews came up in the news uh, a couple of weeks ago, and we'll get to that part of it. But I thought we could start just sort of with the general, most vague sense of curfew being the time that your parents told you you had to be home by. Um, (laughs) Did either of you guys have curfews growing up? I was the youngest of three, and so I know my brother had curfews, my sister had curfews, and I know that my brother and sister attempted to have me be imposed, like, the same curfews that they had. <laughs> you know, the last one, like, your your parent is out of fucks to give, <laughs> and so I think I really benefited from that, but I think in general, like, it would start out, like, you had to be home by 12, and the, okay, so let's say to 14 was you had to be home by 12. And then like after that, it was you had to be home by two. But realistically speaking, my mother is sleeping. So like if it's three, no one's going to know. <laughs> <laughs> and then I think after 16, after 16, 
my mom got a job in Bermuda. So I spent my entire last year of sixth form slash high school living alone. It was just me and my siblings. And there was no curfew at all. And so I had a really good start for college. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think I benefited from not really ever doing anything bad. So I don't remember ever having like, like, I'm sure when I was, you know, eight years old, it was like, come home when it gets dark or whatever, which also seems weird now, because I don't know that I would tell my boys to do that. But then once I, once I was in high school, I could pretty much do whatever I wanted. Hmm. Oh yeah, and so so the reason I bring it up is I I don't you know Nick you have the Oak Creek experience and Nikenji you have your experience. I lived in rural Jefferson County, Wisconsin, and there was no public transportation to speak of. I was late to drive, and I was a, a skateboarder, so like. I was out and around, and if I wanted to get home before my parents went to bed, you know, I had to call them before then. Otherwise, <laughs> I was I was looking at a four and a half mile walk home at the end of the night, and you wouldn't believe it, but I did that a lot. <laughs> that walk, that four and a half mile walk slash skateboard down the middle of Highway X just to get back to my parents' house was a thing I did pretty regularly. And they were almost always in bed by the time I got there. So there was never really a discussion of curfews. As I got older and I got access to vehicles, people driving me around and me driving, then the curfew that eventually my parents, it wasn't really a thing they, an edict they declared so much as it was an, an intention I intuited that they would like me to come home. Like, they didn't care when. <laughs> it's just that, at, like, come and, home sometimes. And your night at the house. Yeah, like, even if it's 10 in the morning, come home. And I, I did that a lot through a lot of summers, all the way through high school and college. Like, that was, you know, I was a night person. We would go out skateboarding, running around. And, and I didn't really have a curfew. I would not treat my child the same way. My child I, has to be home at a certain time or get a hold of me. Why? Well, because I know exactly the kind of horseshit you can get up to in this town after dark. Mm. Like, I, 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 I trust my daughter implicitly. I think she's more on the Nick spectrum than the Gabe spectrum of ill-mannered misbehaving. But I don't know that I trust the community that we're in enough that that they're not going to find their way into her influence. And they probably already have. So, I, you know, I think I think as a parent, my attitude toward curfew is what time you want your kid home really isn't a matter of public debate. I think that's a thing for families to work out. Right. When it comes to personal curfews, I think that's a personal decision. But let's instead talk about municipal curfews. Now, for juveniles, in town here, there was and is a municipal curfew. Did you guys ever run afoul of your municipal curfew? Wait, so you had to, like, if if you're a youth, you have to be home, you can't be out? In Watertown, you cannot be out past a certain time. 
Oh, if you're wow. under 18. That is a municipal curfew. Since when? As long as I've ever known. Let's just Are look here. Are you serious? Yeah. That's crazy. Let's take a look here. Oak Creek municipal curfew. <laughs> Let's just take a look. <laughs> All right. So in Oak Creek, section 11.8 curfew, subsection A, curfew established. It shall be unlawful for any person under 17 years of age to be on foot, bicycle, or in any type of vehicle on any public street, avenue, highway, road, alley, park, school grounds, place of amusement and entertainment, cemetery, playground, public building, or other public place in the city of Oak Creek between the hours of 11 p.m. and 5 a.m. Oh, you didn't live in Oak Creek then, right? No, I did. Wait, for real? Yeah. Now, I don't know when they enacted that, but that is the law as of today, right? Yeah. See, what do they have here? So it applies to it applies to everybody that age. Parentals are held responsible. Uh, parent or guardian have in legal custody of a child in penalty of this is subject to a forfeiture of not less than a dollar and not more than $25, including the <laughs> costs of prosecution. So throw in 80 bucks for municipal court costs and you're looking at a ticket for uh, 115 bucks. I'm just assuming that number. I don't I'll know what it. their municipal court costs are, but let's say that. Well, so, I never did get, I never did get that ticket. It turns out you may have well been Nick regulated by a local curfew. Nikenji, I would assume with your incredulity that they exist, I'm assuming you didn't have one. <laughs> right. Like, no, no such thing. So I ran into it all the time. All the time. And so I thought we could talk a little bit about municipal curfews in the sense that I was not one to respect a municipal curfew. <laughs> and we could probably leave it at that. One of my favorite curfew bust stories was actually in Heartland. I was probably 16. We were out skateboarding and we went into the village of Heartland because they had this cool flat park with some blocks in it, kind of down by the Bark River. And we were there skating and it was 11, 1130. And it's kind of a public area and it's really well lit. And like, you know, we're just assuming everything was a-okay and, and four squads roll up. Now, I don't even know if they have four squads in Heartland. I really don't. But like, I'm telling you, it's all, all the cars, Gabe. squads showed up and because there were like six of us and they're like, who are you? Blah, blah, blah. And they started sort of laying it down. And so we do what we always do. You go sit down on the curb and you wait for them come to come to you. Right. Like no aggressive movements. Don't move quickly. Here's the thing. Usually they would kind of tell you to go on home or you would have one friend who would act up and they would arrest him and tell the rest of you to go on home. <laughs> sure. that's, that's usually what happened. But this time we were all just like, OK, well, we'll leave. And they're like, no, you can't leave. And we're like, but you're telling us. Yeah, we have to leave. You're like, you can't be here. It's after curfew. We're like, okay, we'll go home. And they're like, no, we got to call your parents. And I, I remember sitting on my hands on my skateboard going, I don't know. I don't think you do have to call my parents. <laughs> and they're like, why? What are you hiding? And I'm like, I'm not hiding. She's sleeping. 
you are going to irritate the hell out of her. And she's not going to be mad at me. She's going to be mad at you. You're the one keeping me here. And again, I mean, today's day and age, I would, I'm no doubt would have been arrested, but I don't remember how that story ended, but I do remember that the, we, the lesson we learned was not don't be out after dark. The lesson was stay out of Hartford, which <laughs> when I think about it, might have been the goal. <laughs> sure. Sure. Right. It might have been the plan. Like, let's chase these local yokels back to Jefferson County, because I can't imagine the bureaucratic red tape that would have come up had they decided they needed to deliver us to our parents. You know what I mean? So one could argue and one does argue regularly, uh, not one as in myself, but people do argue regularly that curfews are designed to keep children safe, keep property safe and keep the world safe and sound after the stars come out. And literature that as I did the research on this seems to point that curfews are surprisingly ineffective at reducing juvenile crime. Surprisingly? Surprisingly in the sense that no one is fucking surprised. (laughs) (laughs) So let us turn to one of my favorite nonprofit journalism websites about criminal justice specifically, the Marshall Project, and their article entitled The Curfew Myth, Why Juvenile Curfews Don't Work. This is a pretty great article, and it talks about how the 90s spawned this anti-crime measure and that movement of anti-crime and juvenile curfew laws are all tied together with the same sort of argument about super predators that might be familiar to somebody who's read how to be an Mm anti-racist. Among the many ways that crime was used as the fear portion around the crisis of crime, creating a prejudice against children and people of color, the juvenile curfew laws were designed with that same cycle in mind. The Clinton administration in particularly issued a report recommending the use of juvenile curfew laws, saying that that would address the, quote, rising juvenile delinquency and victimization rates that the 1990s was seeing. By by 2009, 84% of cities of populations with more than 180,000 people had curfew laws, and they remain in effect many, many places throughout the country. Okay, Right. Like we're all smart people. We get the crisis, fear, prejudice cycle like we understand that and that maybe it's not surprising to us. Like think of your most boorish, stubborn friend, the most law and order friend you have. Right. They're going to say, well, yeah, but you got to keep kids inside to keep them safe, keep them off the streets. This is a good plan. Right. So one would assume that. Keeping kids off the streets makes crime go down. And yet, a study published in 2016 by a nonprofit that synthesizes research studies for policymakers known as the Campbell Collaboration 
took over 7,000 studies on juvenile curfews and synthesized them. And would you like to guess at what the report found? <laughs> Mackenzie, would you take a guess? They don't work. <laughs> oh, what a great guess. Nick, how about you? Do you have a guess? I gotta believe that they don't work. <laughs> All guesses are right. But <laughs> your guesses are right. I'm going to just read this as is it appears in this article. Here's what the report states, according to the Marshall Project. Evidence suggests that juvenile curfews are ineffective at reducing crime and victimization. The average effect on juvenile crime during curfew hours was positive. That's right. An increase in crime <laughs> is the result <laughs> of juvenile curfews. Not only do they not reduce crime, but they take people off the streets. And so, therefore, there are fewer bystanders and witnesses on the streets, therefore reducing the deterrent effects on crime. Mm. Here's the thing. Juvenile crime rates surely have continued to balloon and balloon. Juvenile crime is probably still continuing to plague the nation. Wouldn't you agree? No. Of course not. Juvenile crime in 2016, the last year that data was available when this was written, is lower than it's ever been. <gasps> Shocking. Shocking, right? <laughs> so, familiar to anybody who has read How to Be an Anti-Racist, Hillary Clinton organizes an effort to combat gangs of kids, calling them super predators, leading to the institutionalization of curfew is good idea. And then in 2018... Austin, Texas, decided maybe we could just try not having a curfew because uh, they were looking at a report from Rutgers that said, you know, police stops are applied unevenly. <gasps> we're all surprised by that. Exposing youth of color to a wide range of harms. And the report says these discretionary encounters initiated by police officers make on-the-spot assessments of young people's proclivity for delinquency and often fall back on <laughs> racial stereotypes. <laughs> and so Austin said, F it. 2018, no more curfews. Juvenile victimization decreased by 12%. Wow. Simply by allowing the children not to have to hide when the police would come by. And I will say I'm going to make the, the whitest analogy I'm ever going to make. Are you ready? Do you guys remember Kazaa, LimeWire, oh, Napster? Yes. Remember all those? Remember how great it was to just get music off the internet for like or movies and you could just look at them and watch them and stuff? You can still do that today. Those services, point-to-point -point files, 
still exist, but because they are criminalized, it gets mixed in a lot with a lot of yucky porn. The more you make something illegal, the more people will route around it and end up taking people who wouldn't otherwise be exposed to crime, putting them in criminal settings because you've declared them a criminal. This, in my opinion, is brutality by design. That is the intention of a curfew to put people into criminal states of being so that they can, A, be subject to criminal prosecution, but B, fulfill those racial stereotypes in the mind of the policymakers. So let's talk about the third kind of curfew. And in order to talk about that curfew, shit's going to get ugly. As an adult-ass man, protest curfews are the ones that frighten me. Not because they seem, at first blush, to be meaningless, and not because they oppress First Amendment rights under the idea of social order, but because they seem to encourage police brutality. So let recent history be our eyes and ears. Let us go to October 2nd in Wauwatosa. Let us talk about Tracy and Talavia Cole. Are you guys familiar with Tracy and Talavia Cole? Yes. I don't believe so. Tracy is the mother and Talavia is the sister of Alvin Cole, who was murdered by Joseph Mensa, a Wauwatosa police officer, last February. Okay. And on October 2nd, Wauwatosa made a big deal and a big stink about they're going to come down with a decision. And you knew that decision was going to be that what it was, which was, you know, he, he acted reasonably in killing his third person and nobody was surprised and they had a black lives matter sort of thing set up and ready to go. And Talivia Cole and the attorney for the family were all there ready to speak and channel four cuts in live with it. And I happened to be watching at that time and we're like, wow, this is amazing. I need you guys to hear just a few minutes of what she had to say. Alvin Cole did not shoot Joseph Mensah. He did not shoot at Joseph Mensah. Mm-hmm. Alvin Cole was in a six point stance. Joseph Mensah was the last to arrive on the scene when he shot Alvin twice, then three more times while he was laid flat on the ground face down in the back you cannot justify that but the media don't want you to know that the media not putting that in the media they not putting my my brother scream no gun no gun no gun 
Well, he all of a sudden shot four days later. You don't know if a motherfucker shot at you that same day. That motherfucker, excuse my language. That motherfucker, yeah. Uh, you gonna know that that person shot the first day. It took them four days to come up with this presentation to try to discredit my brother's character. It took them four days. And only Joseph said he shot at him. No other cop said Alvin shot at Joseph. No other cop. Only Joseph. Fuck Joseph Minson. And then the lawyer stepped in. That went out over the air on Channel 4. Wow. And that story immediately went away. Yeah. Because that night, Wauwatosa declared a curfew. That night, Wauwatosa declared a curfew wherein Tracy was taken to the hospital with injuries from police brutality. Both Tracy and Talavia were arrested that night for sitting in their car after curfew in Wauwatosa. We turn to the Milwaukee Independent. Milwaukee County Supervisor Ryan Clancy has a simple message for city leaders. Stop using curfews. Curfews don't work. Curfews attempt to criminalize our existence and prop up a system on its way down. Wauwatosa police handled protesters in a cruel, racist, and inept way. While Tracy Cole, Alvin's Cole's mother, grieved the loss of her son at the hands of the police, she was arrested and injured while protesting. That's the story you got. She was out after dark. She broke the law. See? Mm -hmm. That's what the media reports. Nobody says, hmm, seems like maybe they were set up to fail. While Wisconsin media didn't cover it, there is CNN and Time Magazine, Mother Jones, all have written incredible stories that talk about how intentional this appears. So I want to go with one more amazing quote, and then I promise I'll finish depressing you. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's not just ineffective. Curfews aren't just ineffective at at preventing. Did curfews stop any of the physical damage? No, they they just are part of the standard police procedure of escalate until compliance. And that policy doesn't work. You can't escalate until compliance. Andrea Ritchie, justice and race researcher for Bernard College, speaking in Mother Jones magazine, curfews definitely work to increase possibilities for criminalization and police violence. We can guarantee they work for that. Responding to a protest of police violence with more police violence and more criminalization is the absolute worst possible response 
if you're trying to address the issues that protesters are raising right now. (laughs) I don't want to laugh at it, Nick, but it is ridiculous. Right? I mean, like, it's like almost like you set out to say, like, what's the worst way we could handle this? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like, you literally couldn't. You you couldn't possibly sit on your hands and do less damage. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I find it incredibly frustrating, right? And I don't have an answer for you. This is the worst part, is this is one of those shows where I do a ton of research looking at all of these incredible stories, reading about how in Los Angeles, they randomly changed the name and time of the curfews this summer so that nobody knew when the curfew started so that police could just enforce curfews willy-nilly as they needed to. And, oh, that was an accident. That shouldn't have happened. There's so much that we haven't learned since May, and that's discounting everything we didn't fix about the pandemic. We seem to be in a place in America where we are incapable of embracing that slight discomfort to steal a phrase from a friend and just admit there are other ways. And I don't know what to do with that. Well, you know, Gabe, it's working as it's meant to. And I think we just need to come to grips with the fact it's working as it's meant to. This is the system working as it's meant to. We do lip service to the idea that it's meant to give power to the people and empower and right wrongs and be the good cowboy, but it's not. It simply is not. So they didn't learn anything because there was nothing to learn. The system worked as it was meant to. And unfortunately, because of how um, polarized our country's become, the point that you made earlier, Gabe, is a huge one. There is going to be a portion of the populace that is going to see that Alvin Cole's mother was arrested and say, of course she was arrested. Of course she was acting disorderly. And though, to Nikenji's point, those people, they're not going to conceive this as the system not working. Yeah. The, the comment thread alone on the Journal Sentinel recording of that presentation is just a cesspool. As it, as it usually is. Yeah. yeah. And it makes me... So again, like I'm quiet because like it just makes me reflect on like that quote, and I'm sure you've heard it from James Baldwin when he said, to be a Negro in this country and to be relatively conscious is to be in a state of rage almost, almost all of the time and in one's work. And part of the rage is this, it isn't only what is happening to you, but it's what's happening all around you and all of the time in the face of the most extraordinary and criminal indifference, indifference of most white people in this country and their ignorance. Now, since this is so, it's a great temptation to simplify the issues under the illusion that if you simplify them enough, people will recognize them. I think this illusion is very dangerous because, in fact, it isn't the way it works. A complex thing can't be made simple. You simply have to try to deal with it in all its complexity and hope to get that complexity across. And, you know, there's just rage almost all the time. 
you know, there's the old phrase, right? When all you have is a hammer, everything's a nail. And unfortunately, when I feel like we've dealt this with this in a number of our shows, it starts at the start. It starts with how you're trained as a police officer and their life situation. And how crazy is it that that's what they lead with when 99% of the time, 99.9% of the time, it's no one's life that's going to be lost. It's the interaction. Mackenzie, I... I'm not familiar with that quote. And that was profound because the truth be told, there isn't anything to learn. You're right. And at the same time, I've learned so much in the last six months. And thanks, I think, to the insight that I got tonight for the first time. I think I know what rage is. I don't think I ever really appreciated rage to the extent that I do now, having heard it framed that way, Nikenji. I start off with the idea of telling some goofy stories about the time in my life when I was lesser privileged right but like so privileged because the world was not going to solve my sneering skateboard attitude with straight up violence when we ran from the police entering the front of stupid's house when they busted that party nobody took us down nobody thought to chase after us and find us when we hid in the snowbanks wiggling our way across this bizarre mountainscape of parked snow berms, watching the police flashlights scoot over the top of us and timing our climbing over the hills so that the flashlights didn't hit us, so that we could hope to escape from the back of the snowfield to find our way home to avoid a curfew bus. I thank God that I wasn't shot as I did that. Because I was just a dumb, a dumb fucking kid out after dark. That was all I did wrong. <laughs> and it was a game and it's not a game, right? It's not a game for so many, of so many. <sighs> so what did we learn? <laughs> we learned that your graduation tassels have been forgotten. we learned that by the time they get to the third one, the curfew's tired and your parents aren't waiting up for you anymore. (laughs) We learned that it is working as it is meant to, that this idea that there is a good cowboy behind the sheriff is only lip service that they cannot see what they are doing and learn from it, and that we cannot simplify it until they can understand it. We can only explain it in its complexity and hope that at some point something gets through. And I think I'm living fucking proof (laughs) that there is hope. There is hope. (sighs) Wauwatosa geared up. They suited up. 
they curfewed down on its own people on October 2nd. Because if you enact a curfew, you get to escalate. And as long as people in America are murdered by law enforcement because of the color of their skin, it cannot probably be okay. Yeah, I'm gonna talk my shit.